Hi, this is Cricket Lou, your co-host. Welcome to the second installment of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Matt Larson. Hi, everybody. And we actually have now uh, a couple of questions to answer. Yes, it was very gratifying to have people actually uh, apparently have listened to the first episode. Well, actually, we don't know that they listened. They might have just found the website. That's right. That's right. We hope they listened to the first episode. All 35 minutes. <laughs> it was a full 35 minutes long, was it? All right. But, but it was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I hung on every minute, even when I listened to it the second time. Yeah. So shall we just jump right into it? Sure. Cricket, who's our first question from? <laughs> well, our first question comes to us from Chris Parente. Do you know Chris? Well, now I have to say yes. <laughs> or if he's listening and he hears... No, I, I do. I remember Chris from his days at VeriSign. It was um, it was a while ago. All right. About five years ago, actually. So Chris has done us a favor by submitting a question. Uh, and Chris's question, shall I just go ahead and read this? Sure. See, he says, what a great idea. Here's my question. I'm sure one many people have. How long before DNSSEC deployment becomes truly widespread? And so we should clarify that uh, by DNSSEC, he's referring to the DNS security extensions. Of course, anybody who knows what the DNS security extensions are already knows that uh, they're referred to as DNSSEC. Right. Maybe we better just very briefly say uh, a little bit about DNSSEC. Uh, you get two things security-wise with, with DNSSEC. You get uh, what's called uh, data origin authentication in that you know where a piece of DNS data comes from. And in this case, you know what zone it comes from That's because right. zones get signed. And so uh, you, you can know that a particular resource record set came from, say, the, uh, the ask-mrdns.com uh, zone. Right, right. And... The other thing you get is data authentication, and you know that the data has not been altered since it was signed. So you know that there wasn't some man in the middle trying to uh, change the data because the, the data wouldn't verify. Right. And the reason that you need this is because the sort of old school DNS, RFC 1034 and 1035 DNS, doesn't have anything like that. And, uh, of course, DNS is relied upon by basically every substantial service that runs over the internet, and as we're starting to do more and more critical, higher and higher value stuff over the internet, we need to make sure that the answers that we get out of DNS are in fact correct, that they haven't been subverted by someone. Right, and it's actually remarkably easy to do because most DNS queries and responses are a single packet. It's a single UDP packet for the query and a single UDP packet for the response. So if you're a resolver, you have to believe that response, if the, the the remote source IP address matches what you think it should be and the DNS message ID matches, you, you pretty much have to trust it. And unfortunately, from a reliability standpoint, that, that's not very much to go on. Right, right. So DNSSEC, uh, as Matt said, introduces asymmetric cryptography to try to solve this problem and enables you to digitally sign your zone data. So where are we with it? Well, I think We've certainly seen a lot of progress in the past, oh, let's say year, 18 months. Uh, we've now seen some top-level domains uh, either sign their zones or say they're going to sign their zones. I think at last count, I think it's five top-level domains. They're all um, country code top-level domains. Is it only five? 
I think so, I and I'm not going to be able to name them all. Sweden was first, I believe, and yeah. Bulgaria, and Puerto Rico, and I'm sorry, I just can't remember the other one or two. Right, yeah. Oh, yeah, Brazil? Definitely those. Yep. BR? Yep, BR as well, yep. Yeah. And the other big news is that .org is one of the first uh, GTLDs that's said it's going to sign its own. Uh, we, well, we know .gov is coming. They made a big splash talking about that very soon, I think. This month, I believe. Um, yeah. I think that GSA is supposed to sign by January 2009 and then subzones of Gov by December of 2009. And then the other thing that um, is going to be a, a big deal in a, the DNSSEC deployment world will be getting the root signed. And there's been some positive motion on that. Um, the U.S. Department of Commerce had a notice of inquiry that ended in uh, December, and they are, are busy going through all of the responses where people opined on DNSSEC, and, and D, in, in, partic in general, I should say, in DNSSEC and the root in particular. And they, they, they did get some, uh, some interesting responses. They, they got some that were, I think, quite, quite thoughtful and raised some interesting points, and then they, they of course, got, um, well, they got some, I think, less useful responses. Right. And, and we should explain that having the root zone signed is especially important because it means that in order to do validation, you really only have to plug one public key into your name server. And today, in, in the current sort of balkanized situation, if you want to be able to, for example, uh, ver verify data that's uh, or validate data that's under you know Brazil's top level domain and Sweden's top level domain and Bulgaria's top level, then you have to, have to actually plug in public keys for all of those various domains into your name server's configuration. Right, and those are called trust anchors. Right, right. And one problem that you have is where do you get those trust anchors from and how do you in fact trust the trust anchors right there's no standardized mechanism to get that no one is collecting them in one place right now each tld publishes the publishes them in a slightly different manner so if you want to go and collect them all it's it's not an easy thing to do um, the folks um, at, at ICANN who run the IANA function have said that they're going to have a trust anchor repository. They're, they're calling it the ITAR, the Internet, or no, excuse me, the Interim Trust Anchor Repository, because this collection of trust anchors for TLDs, and they're only going to accept uh, TLD trust anchors, it will be interim because when the root zone is signed, you don't need it anymore. The information that would be in the trust anchor repository is effectively all in the root zone. Right, right. So it's a it's a big deal, and we certainly look forward to uh, the time when the root zone is signed, and we don't have to bother as much with the management of those trust anchors. And I think I would hope that we could see that in uh, I would hope the next year or two. I mean, it's I, on the one hand, it's kind of a silly thing to say it's it's closer now than it ever has been, but uh, you know, it really is the truth. I think there's been such positive motion and such good things happening that I think one really can be optimistic that the root zone is going to be signed uh, within the relatively near future. Right. And there's no there's no technical impediment to that. It's not technically difficult to sign the root zone. It's really more of a, a political issue, isn't it? It really is, yes. It, 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 like, like most things dealing with, with the root and DNS at the upper levels of the namespace, uh, it quickly becomes more political than technical yeah. most of the time. Yeah. 
so that's so we're going to get uh, we got to get some TLD signed. Uh, we got to get the root signed. Another thing we shouldn't overlook is that that's just on the publishing side of things, sort of the making the signed data available. Uh, you know, to to draw uh, an automobile analogy, uh, you know, you can go you can go selling cars, um, but if there aren't any roads to drive them on, um, that's no good. So you, we kind of need the corresponding part of the system, which is people have to actually be validating the data here that the signed data that gets sent out. Right, right. And you have some numbers on that based on the, the study that you did, right? As far as the percentage of, uh, of name servers out there that appear to be asking for, or at least willing to accept uh, DNSSEC signed data. Right. And that, that would be the, they're setting the DNSSEC okay bit. However, for reasons that I don't particularly understand, but which have been explained to me, and I remember at the time going, well, I guess I can buy that. Modern iterative resolvers, that is, you know, the things doing the, the looking up of DNS data, they set the, the DO bit, the DNSSEC OK bit, meaning that they want DNSSEC responses back, even when they're not explicitly configured to do DNSSEC validation, for example, if they have no trust anchors configured. And I believe this has something to do with uh, populating the cache or maybe for downstream uh, resolvers that could be using them as, as a forwarder. So what that means is that unfortunately, looking just at the number of iterative resolvers that are setting the DO bit doesn't exactly tell you how many are actually prepared to do DNSSEC validation. Right, but it, it probably would indicate that they're at least, what, uh, programmatically capable of doing capable, the validation? Right. I mean, if they have the, the trust anchors uh, configured, they would be capable of doing that. Right, although I do wonder, is anybody setting DO that doesn't understand modern DNSSEC, that is DNSSEC as defined in 4033, 34, and 35. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. And since I'm one of the co-authors, I should know the dates on those RFCs, but they're, they're a couple years old already at least. Mm -hmm. That's a good, that's a good question. So some of those DO bits might represent resolvers that are claiming they understand DNSSEC when in fact, you know, they really don't. Now, yet another wrinkle is uh, NSEC three, mm -hmm. which is how you do what's the, this is another feature of DNSSEC called authenticated denial of existence, which is how do you prove something doesn't exist? And it's easy to um, to prove something exists uh, uh, cryptographically. You you just sign the thing, and, and DNSSEC proves that something doesn't exist by having this special record that indicates essentially the absence of data and then that gets signed as well. Right. So you have something to return, something unique actually to return and something therefore to sign. Right. And without going into all the background, the way this is done in what we call vanilla DNSSEC, the defined in RFCs 4033, 34, and 35, it's done with the NSEC record. And that has uh, a couple of downsides. Uh, one is that it lets someone list the contents of your zone because every NSEC record points to the next name in the zone. DNSSEC defines for the first time uh, a canonical ordering of a zone. And now that a zone has this order, we, that's actually required for the NSEC record. And, and uh, the NSEC record at one name points to the next name in the zone and so on and so on. So all you have to do is start at any point in the zone and uh, they call that walking the zone, and you can enumerate the contents right. of the zone. And there's even a, a bitmap stored on, on each one of those NSEC records that says these are the various record types attached to, to uh, the domain name. Right, so it'd be trivial to, to reconstitute a zone 
uh, even if zone transfers are shut off. And that has posed um, a great problem to some of the uh, CCTLDs in Europe. They've said that from a, a privacy standpoint, when you combine that, what they call zone enumerability, with being able to get data out of who is, that causes privacy implications. And I certainly am not a lawyer, let alone a lawyer versed in EU law, but we have to take them at their word on that. And the other big uh, issue with NSEC is that for a really large zone, like let's say, oh, I don't know, .com, uh, as soon as you sign it with a vanilla DNSSEC, suddenly you need one of these NSEC records at every single name, and then you need a signature over the NSEC record, which is quite large as well, and you've suddenly potentially tripled or quadrupled the size of your zone um, just on day one when you when you sign it. Right, right. And that led to NSEC 3. I, I, I do remember where we were going with this. And, and NSEC 3 <laughs> uh, gets around both of those problems. It, uh, it it does authenticated denial, and it stops the zone walking problem. It, it, it stops that from being, being possible, and it greatly reduces uh, the size of, of the zone. But the issue with NSEC 3 is that uh, DNSSEC validators that understand it are not widely deployed. Um, the unbound the unbound recursive name server understands it, but unbound uh, has only been out for six months and it has, uh, you know, realistically a, a very small market share. Uh, the next version of bind 9.6, is that right, Cricket? Yeah, 9.6.0 has NSEC 3 support. Yeah, and the folks at PIR who uh, are the registry for .org are uh, helping fund that and drive that because they are the first TLD that have announced that they're going to use uh, NSEC 3. Well, other TLDs have said they're, they're interested in it. Um, it, it was um, nominet.uk uh, and denic.de and verisign for .com and .net. We were uh, the, the main backers of NSEC 3 and you know, we've all indicated that when those zones get signed, you know, we'll be using NSEC 3, but the people who are actually signing their zone first with NSEC 3 uh, is going to be .org and therefore they're working with ISC to get out a version of bind that supports NSEC 3. So where I was headed with all of this is to say, <laughs> even though we have these DO bits coming in, um, we're going to get to the point where as soon as .org is signed, uh, you'll either need unbound 1.0 or bind 9.6, uh, or you'll be out in the dark. You won't be able to validate that data. Right, right. We should say, though, that in terms of backwards compatibility, if you're running a name server that has no DNSSEC support, whatsoever, or you have no DNSSEC configured, even though those records may be coming back to you, you, you will be okay, right? You'll, you'll continue to be able to resolve domain names. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we, from a DNSSEC protocol standpoint, we worked really hard to make sure that that, that was the case. There was even the, the, the great changeover of uh, uh, DNSSEC record types, uh, the, the actual DNSSEC type numbers changed. Uh, between the second and third iterations of, of DNSSEC so that it would purposely make older DNSSEC implementations uh, completely oblivious and blind to the new style DNSSEC. So they, they couldn't possibly get confused because they would see DNSSEC records coming back, but they wouldn't know that they were DNSSEC records because they're sort of a generation behind, if that makes sense. Yeah, right, right. Well, very good. <laughs> we got to get the root sign. We got to get some uh, top-level domain sign. We got to get uh, validators out there so people actually validate the data. Um, I guess we also got to get 
individual enterprises and organizations they need to sign their zones right exactly exactly and they have to they have to get out there and configure those recursive name servers to actually start validating stuff and uh, we've seen uh, from from our surveys at, at Infoblox and at the Measurement Factory, we've seen very very slow uptake in those organizations getting their uh, their zones, their internet facing zones signed. Um, I believe we talked about this in the last podcast. Uh, the numbers went you know from about 44 signed subzones of common common net that we found out of a sample of uh, about a million subzones. Uh, in 2007 to about 45, which of course is well within the margin of error. So we're not seeing a whole lot of uptake uh, under under common net, but that's probably undercounting. There are certainly uh, other top level zones where the uh, adoption of DNSSEC is, is more prevalent uh, because for example, the top level zone itself is already signed. Right, I'm sure if you ran that in .se, for example, where they've had DNSSEC going for well over a year, the numbers would be different. Right, right. So do we risk a direct answer to Chris? How long will it be before DNSSEC adoption is widespread? I guess, well, I don't know. There was, there was one more thing I wanted to mention about this, and that's that uh, regarding the, you know, the individual uh, end users, the organizations at the, at the leafs of the DNS namespace signing their zones, right now, it's it's not easy to do that. You really have to want to do it, and you have to use tools that are uh, often command line based, and they're really mm-hmm. version 1.0 tools. They're not very friendly. Um, I, I think we're going to have to have better tools. We're going to have to have DNS hosting services that support DNSSEC to really make it easier for people to do that so that it's nothing more than they can literally just click one box and presto their their zone is signed and they don't have to worry about generating keys and refreshing signatures and on all that sort of thing and and is, is infoblox doing anything in that regard yeah we absolutely are and I, I totally agree with you that it is incumbent upon vendors like infoblox to uh, support dnssec and to make it as as simple as possible because as you said the state of the art in terms of dnssec tools is is pretty poor right now uh, stone knives and bearskins, like they say. <laughs> um, <laughs> somewhere out there, one of our Mr. Spock, <laughs> one of our listeners, <laughs> got that reference. I hope um, they probably know the exact episode title, the original air date. I think that's is is that city on the edge of uh, city on the edge city of, on the edge of forever. Forever it, it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the the first what Jane Seymour's first television appearance. I think also. I don't know about that. No, it's not Jane Seymour. No, who is the, it? It's um oh the from uh, the, the the lead in in Dynasty, the lead in Dynasty, yeah. Um, Am oh, I right, embarrassing right. myself on national podcast <laughs> uh, <laughs> by knowing who that is? Uh, the the yeah, one no, who, no, who played uh, 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 right the the sort of ma- the Carrington matriarch. Yes, uh, I don't remember what her name is. I can picture her. I hear you typing. Yeah, I, I can see her sort of platinum blonde hair. Are you oh sure? wait a minute! I th- I think we're thinking of. Uh, I thought you know it's probably it's going to be uh, Joan Collins. Joan Co- is it Joan Collins? It's Joan Collins. Oh good lord! Yes. Yeah. Somewhere, somewhere there's a there's a, a podcast listener shouting at his <laughs> shouting at his speakers. They've been shouting Joan Collins for the past forty five seconds. Right. You idiots. Now, now she was in Dynasty, right? Am I right? Uh yeah, I think she was. I think she okay. was. I, I never watched it, but you know. Mm-hmm. 
I didn't. <laughs> I don't know anything. No, I really, truly didn't. But all right, all right. Well, that's a diversion. But um, yeah, what were we talking about? So how did we get into? St oh, uh, tools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tools. So tools. Absolutely, absolutely. You should be completely insulated from the underlying complexity of DNSSEC, right? You should just be able to, uh, you know, easily paste a trust anchor into the right place in a graphical user interface, or even better, just retrieve it automatically. You ought to be able to just push a button and have a, a zone signed, um, you know, with some intelligently chosen key length for your key pair. All of that stuff ought to be automatic. And so we are actually uh, introducing DNSSEC support. Um, very very soon. Cool. Well, we we probably should try to uh, answer his question. What um, could you read? I don't have it in front of me. Could you read the exact wording of his question again? Please? Well, the exact wording. The exact wording um, is he wants to know uh, how long before DNSSEC deployment becomes truly widespread, and of course. Um, that would depend on how you define widespread. Ah, so we can give whatever answer we want. We can, and we can just say, well, that's not what we considered widespread. Well, why don't we each, uh, so sh should we each give our own take on it? Mm -hmm. Sure. All right. Well, I'm going to go first since it was my idea. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I'll go ahead and uh, I'll predict that I think we'll see the root signed within, and I'll, I'll give uh, conservative numbers here. I think we'll see the root signed within two years. Um, I think we'll see the major GTLD signed within three years. And I think we'll see um, a substantial number of sort of, let's call them end user zones. And by that, I mean, let's say at least 10,000. I think we'll see that within five years. Okay. Okay. What do you well, think of that? I think that sounds very reasonable. I, I Again, I think that's conservative. I would love to see the root zone signed in the next 12 months. I don't know what uh, the likelihood of that is. Um, and it would be great to see 10,000 subzones signed or, or zones signed in the next three years. But uh, yeah, certainly yeah, certainly by, f by five years, uh, we ought to see something or, or I believe we can officially, uh, we can officially declare DNSSEC dead. Yeah, put a bullet in that head. Yep, yep. And of course, there is a chicken and egg problem here that we've kind of alluded to in that end users need to sign their zones, but if ISPs and enterprises don't turn on DNSSEC validation in their recursive name servers, uh, you know, nobody verifies the data that's signed, but if end users know that validation isn't turned on, there's maybe not an incentive for them to sign their zones. So there is this, to use the, the tired phrase, the chicken and egg problem. Right. Or, or to, the flip side of it is a network effect, right? For yes. every additional zone that gets signed, the value of signing your own zone and of uh, implementing validation on your recursive name servers goes up. Indeed. So do you think we've, we've uh, flogged Chris's question to death? I think we have. And, and, and I think we probably are... Um nearing the limit of what we should uh, call a particular this particular episode. All right. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? No, no, I, I, I think that's good. I would just mention to you that in the latest book that I'm reading, uh, which is a, a great science fiction book by a, a woman who lives in all places uh, in Greeley, Colorado, a woman by the name of Connie Willis, it features handbell ringers. And I know, I know how much you, uh, you enjoy handbells. <laughs> she actually seems to have pretty much the same attitude towards handbell ringers that you do. Although really? I, I find it fascinating that 
um, at the same time that she she seems to really despise handbell ringers she seems to know a tremendous amount about them so uh -huh. it, it makes me wonder whether perhaps she's a lapsed handbell ringer herself it could be maybe she did it for years and years and then she had a falling out or, or maybe some traumatic incident you know the largest bell fell on her foot or something and yeah yeah but she knows all the lingo she talks about you know ringing a peel and uh and well now peel ringing now that that's cool oh okay now that's, that's but that's how is that different belt. well handbells are um are, are literally bells that you ring in your hands and you have four or five octaves and and my chief complaint with handbells is that uh you know they're kind of the, the arrangements of music for handbells tend to be kind of kind of cheesy and uh dramatic and, and over the top and, and they kind of make uh kind of make one cringe um <laughs> But but peel bells are uh, bells in uh, a tower, and this this is in uh, this started in in England, mm -hmm. and I know very little about it. I don't know if you need a fixed number of peel bells. I, I think it's maybe eight, and and everybody stands around in a circle, and they've all got a uh, they've all got a a rope, and it's this intricate pattern, and and there can be different lengths of peels, and and some peels take literally hours to ring with everyone. Uh, everyone ringing in this particular pattern. Hmm. And, and I guess I should say, so that you don't have to toot your own horn or, or uh, play your own organ, as it were, that uh, that you would know, right, for, for, for our listeners out there who are going, well, where in the world would Matt be subjected to, uh, to all of this handbell ringing that you're a church organist? I am a currently unemployed church organist. <laughs> do you need, but, do you uh, need work? Should we... <laughs> Should we add a solicitation at the end of the podcast? I, yeah, we we could. Yes, no. My wife and I met in music school. We both play the organ, and that's a very serious, uh, very serious side for us. In fact, Cricket has uh, has seen what lurks in the music room in in my house. That's right. That's right. The finest privately owned organ I believe I've ever seen. Okay, certainly not the finest in existence, but uh, no, but no, yes. No. Well, so. my my exposure to organs is very small. Yes. No, I'm very very excited that there are 600 pipes up in the living room so it's it's a it's really quite a quite a privilege and a luxury to have a, a practice organ at home and uh so it you know i believe it's probably the only pipe organ that dns uh dns bought probably true probably true you know having a house down in santa cruz we actually probably have neighbors who have 600 pipes in their living room but that's quite another matter <laughs> well maybe on that note we should, <laughs> we should sign off all right all well, right take it away all right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to Episode 2. Thanks very much. Um, and we will see you next time, Episode 3, with, with more questions. So please keep sending them in. We should remind everyone that it's uh, MrDNS, MRDNS, at ask-MrDNS.com. That's right. See you next time. Bye-bye.